Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined this week by not just Ken Katenkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School, but also Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thanks, Trey. Hey, Trey. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited to be with you guys here for, uh, for a show. And Trey, before I turn it over to you, I just wanted to say a couple of quick things. Uh, first off is, you know, it's, it's such a critical time, both for the United States and the world. And at a time like this, it's easy to feel really kind of helpless and almost overwhelmed with information. I know I'm hearing so much from so many different sources about coronavirus that it's kind of hard to wrap my head around it at times. And that's why I'm very happy to be able to recommend today's sponsor, Coronavirus Daily Briefing Podcast to you. The Coronavirus Daily Briefing is a new podcast that comes out every day by 5 p.m. with the latest headlines and context around the COVID-19 coronavirus coronavirus crisis. It's a production of Ride Home Media, the daily podcast people, and it covers all the things that happen today, as well as all the things you can do to protect yourself tomorrow. It's a quick 15 to 20 minutes and you're up to date. The New Yorker magazine called it one of the top coronavirus podcasts to listen to, saying it stays on the right side of informed, non-hysterical, and focused. So search your podcast app right now and subscribe to Coronavirus Daily Briefing. That's, again, Coronavirus Daily Briefing, and you'll also find the link in today's show notes. And one final thing, you know, as staying home and sheltering in place is becoming a norm, more and more people are turning to podcasts, of course. and we know that you appreciate the civil and rational approach we take to our, well, to our coronavirus coverage and everything else in the world of politics. And we would be very grateful if you could help us get the word out by sharing this episode in your social media feeds. It takes, I don't know, like 30 seconds, maybe just click that share symbol triangle thing in your podcast app, choose your social media network, type out a quick message and boom, you're done. And best of all, it's not only completely free to you, but by helping us broaden our listener base, you're making it easier for us to keep bringing you the show. Thanks very much. Okay, Trey, I'm all done. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Ken. And it's always a lot of fun because I know one of the things we're going to talk about today is in fact the coronavirus. But I have to say that the coronavirus crisis, you might need to have to say that 10 times fast a few times <laughs> to get that one out. Uh, and I know that for our listeners, this is kind of, I mean, this is the thing that has all of the oxygen in the room and, and, and subsidiary from that. And so I'm not going to try to kind of go all of it, but I thought what I would kind of start with for this week is starting with California, because the, I think the big change this week has been California, which is the first state to issue a statewide uh, restriction, keep residents 
at home. That's 40 million people. As the governor talked about, I mean, that's the size of many countries. Uh, what do we think? What, what do you guys think about this? Is this, and I, I, and I say when we're thinking about this, this begins to t- kind of uh, begin the, 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 the connection between civil liberties and between the necessity for a health crisis especially in a, in a federal system such as ours, where we aren't going to be doing it at the national level. We're doing it state by state. Uh, so what, what are your responses to having California uh, lock itself down? Well, you know, it's somewhat, so, somewhat like that here in Ohio as well, where I am. It's not, um, I guess they haven't literally ordered every Ohioan to stay in our houses, but, uh, but they've closed down um, quite a lot of places, schools, restaurants, bars, basically most businesses other than grocery stores and pharmacies. So um, I don't know, you know, it really, um, it's almost impossible for me as a non-medical professional to really do much more than um, listen to what medical professionals are saying. There's there's dramatic civil liberties implications, but there's dramatic health uh, implications, which are hard, I think, for non-health professionals to really get, 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 get at least for me to get my, my, my head around. I can't, I, I can't tell. There's there's enormous damage to the economy and to civil liberties, but you know whether whether that's necessary uh, or not. Um, I don't know what we can do other than trust the public health officials. No, I agree. I also wanted to point out that uh, earlier today, Governor Cuomo ordered a similar lockdown in New York, and that's another 20 million people. Of course, New York being a pretty large. And I, I certainly echo what, what Ken has to say with that. I expect, and actually, I hope more states follow that because based on what we've seen from the places that have handled this the best, they've used these rather severe measures. And so when I see things like this, I actually find a, a certain amount of, of comfort in it because it's a sign to me that people are taking this with the seriousness it needs to be taken. And and for every lockdown, I think that's going to make it that much easier for us to maybe manage this surge or make this less of a surge. What about in terms of the, there's been a lot of criticism this week concerning and thinking about, we have a federal system, right? Each of these states has the freedom to make these decisions. And both of you uh, seem to be arguing that you hope that more states do it. Is is this a sign of federalism working or is this a sign of the potential downside to federalism, meaning that we we have a peace? Is it either a piecemeal approach or is it targeted to the circumstances of each state in a positive way? Uh, What do you think about that specifically? Ken, why don't we start with you? Yeah, well, I I look at this as um, federalism is actually providing a safeguard here. Um, It's a it's an imperfect backup. Um, if the federal government fails. And that's kind of how I perceive what's going on, is that uh, a more successful federal response would have been preferable to um, a state-by-state response. But a state-by-state response is preferable to a failed federal um, response. That's kind of how I look at it. Absolutely. So you just completely agree, Mike? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure. The absolute, <laughs> I couldn't tell if that was the beginning of a thought or just that was the thought itself. Um, now, <laughs> now, the other bit here, and Ken, you had alluded to this a minute ago, is, I mean, this is, there's some severe financial repercussions, and you don't have to look much further than a volatile stock market to see, you know, different news see this kind of stock market pick up a little bit. Now it's ticking. I mean, in general, we're still headed down. We're obviously uh, in uh, in bear and potentially recession territory. 
And so the other big item this week is really a, a complicated one when it comes in terms of policy, which is the idea that we ought to have uh, direct payouts. And I think in a large part, this comes from the point of view that in 2008, that the bailout effectively went to big banks. It went to people, or I should say corporations, that may or may not have really needed it instead of trying to specifically help uh, workers, individuals, families, etc. And so the big question on the plate starts off by uh, uh, from the Trump administration, no less, is the idea of direct payouts. And so uh, today we finally got our hands uh, on the Republican from the Senate point of view to put forward a plan to stimulate the economy, kind of phase three of this, to have direct payments to individuals up to about $1,200, for children. But it's graduated. So as you get over $75,000, it's going to decrease. By the time you get to about $98,000, it's going to go away. But likewise, if you don't have any federal uh, tax liability, uh, you're going to get capped at $600 per the individual. What's what's unique about this is, and Ken and Mike, I'm really interested in, in your take, is that a lot of these restrictions coming from the Senate are coming from signals from Nancy Pelosi, who had suggested that she didn't want universal direct payouts. Uh, and man, did she ever get hammered on the left, specifically the slate and others, pointing out that it's pretty sad that you know, the, the president, uh, Donald Trump, is outflanking her on the left. What do you think about this as an option to stimulate the economy? What do you think about this coming from Senate Republicans? And what does this infighting between Democrats mean uh, when it comes to how we ought to feel about this direct payment or a stimulus plan? Well, I, I think it's a it's a gimmick. Um, it's a bad idea. Um, I'm 100% with Pelosi on it. And uh, um, I don't really think there's going to be tremendous infighting within Democrats. I think it, it's a gimmick that's designed to benefit Donald Trump. And that when um, when the, when all the congressional Democrats look at it that way, it, it's not really going to have any traction with Democrats. The, the right kind of a stimulus um, would be much more targeted. For one thing, you know, there's not even enough government spending going on to um, manufacture coronavirus tests or to create more capacity in hospitals. Um, that kind of stimulus spending is needed much more than giving out checks to people. And then, um, you know, other kinds of, uh, to the extent people need financial relief, um, it should be much more targeted into programs like unemployment compensation and, and Medicaid so that it actually reaches the, the people who need it. Uh, because they've lost their jobs or or because they need health care. Um, I, I, I just can't see any reason why, um, you know, ordinary workers who earn $70,000 a year and who are still earning $70,000 a year should be getting extra money right now when, you know, a lot of other people are in, in much more dire straits than that and, and you know, really need, um, you know, more than $1,000. They need to have unemployment compensation that will go on uh, for the length of their unemployment. Um, and uh, um, so I, I can't see any Democrats going along with a gimmick like this. And I, I really can't see any actual um, dissension within the Democrats lasting for very long. Well, the reason I bring that up is early, you know, earlier this week, we already had kind of part two of the coronavirus package come forward. Uh, and that did exactly what you were suggesting, which to is extended unemployment and their options far far more targeted. Uh, but, you know, many of these plans uh, can, I mean, coming from Democrats, uh, we have several asking for much larger numbers, about 2,000 and 1,000 respectively, 
from Democratic senators, and they're a little upset that's not going as far. And they and they effectively wanted what you might call almost a universal basic income in the sense that it would not have been uh, tested. In other words, send it out and tax it later seems to be so. You, you seem to be indicating that there's not a split here, but I, I don't see that. There won't be a lasting split. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree, Ken, with, with what Ken's saying here. And I think it's really easy to get focused in the political messaging aspect of it. And I think that's a big mistake. I think that's absolutely what the president's doing, because that's what he does. Something big and tangible like, well, Donald Trump gave you a thousand twelve hundred dollar check. But the question we need to be asking ourselves right now is who's hurting the most and who will be hurting the most from this? And how can we help those people? And too many people aren't asking that question. And Ken's exactly right. Expanding unemployment insurance, expanding Medicaid. Those are the things we need to be doing. And when you take a look at the numbers, something like two thirds of Americans have less than a thousand dollars in total savings and around half say they have almost like nothing or next to nothing in a savings account. Those are the people who are just going to get totally slammed because also many of those people are in the type of service jobs that are not happening are closed down right now. So I agree with Ken calling it a gimmick. And I think we need to focus much more on the sort of things that are going to help the people who are going to be most affected by this. I'm really surprised to hear both of you take that point of view. I'm going to be honest. I, especially you, Ken, I figured for sure that you would side with far more progressive Democrats, especially in the Senate, who saw this as not going far enough. Uh, You've taken me a little bit aback. So it seems like maybe you're a little bit more on on the conservative side of this then. I wouldn't say that because um, I, I think the I mean, total cons- this dollar is, this numbers at issue. Yeah, I'm sorry. Finish, finish. <laughs> well, I, I think that I, I'd be, you know, I, I didn't say anything about what the total amount of dollars needed would be. And, and really, um, I don't know. I'd want to look at economic models and look at um, impacts on people. But but I think, you know, I would be open to the idea that the right number for a stimulus package could be very, very high. And, you know, I think conservatives maybe usually would want to keep it uh, more under control that way. But I'm just saying the way the money is spent, it has to be spent in a smart way that benefits people who need it and that actually stimulates the economy and just giving giving extra cash to people who don't need it and not giving nearly enough cash to people who do need it or not putting nearly enough cash into bump, uh, stepping up the production of um, uh, some medical technologies that are needed, whether it's whether it's tests or whether it's ventilators or, or things like that. that. That's really, I think, where the stimulus spending needs to go. I mean, again, I mean, that I won't necessarily disagree with you there. I, again, just a little bit surprised that that's where you'd be uh, because, I mean, generally you're kind of outflanking uh, many of the Democratic parties a little bit to the left. And on this one, it seems like you're coming in a bit more economically conservative. And so I guess what you're kind of holding out there is to say, well, I might still want to spend more as a total <laughs> uh, than Republicans yeah. want to spend on that front. Uh, but again, I mean, this this it has a bunch of backing from Democrats. They, they wanted to see these payouts be uh, larger. Um, but it yeah, seems well, like... Not me. I mean- I think a social safety net is a is a you know as I understand it it's for people who need it it's it's not it's not for everybody. Well, let's kind of turn the question just slightly on this front because one of the other big items uh, out Friday uh, is that Donald Trump his approval rating specifically on his coronavirus response uh, this week has ticked up so much so that a a large majority now approve of President Donald Trump's handling of the issue. 
Now, my question, I've been kind of uh, thinking about on this front, has been by seemingly in some ways uh, embracing a particularly progressive, what I would consider to be a progressive position, uh, has he set him... I kind of had wondered a couple of weeks ago if this wasn't the downfall for his reelection campaign. And now kind of wondered if maybe the coronavirus not, might not be a win if he continues to get uh, positive numbers. And so is that part of the reason why you don't you just see this as an election ploy? I mean, there, I had a question there, but, uh, but what, what do you I mean? Well, besides the election ploy, how do you see this impacting? I mean, this obviously might benefit him, given the, the most recent poll numbers. Well, the, the cash, the cash giveaways to everybody is an election ploy for sure. And that's one reason I think Democrats will all within a few days come around to rejecting it, even if you say. But how could they possibly all right come around to it? I mean, they've already proposed their own bills that would double and sometimes triple the payout amounts and without means testing it. Well, we'll I, see. We'll see. Oh, oh, Michael, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think it's premature. It's like asking about a a governor's or president's approval of a natural disaster before it really hits. Right now, I just pulled up the CDC site. We have over 15,000, just over 15,000 confirmed cases and 201 total deaths. That's going to go up and that's going to go up a lot. I mean, I I will think we will have gotten away very lucky if it's only 200,000 total deaths in this country. And so approval now doesn't mean anything. You know, approval, we're going to see what it's like when when we get that curve, whether it's going to be the uh, the Italy version of it or the South Korea version. I think we're on a pathway a little more for Italy. And then then when the deaths are in, you know, 100,000 plus, that's going to have a big effect. And then people are going to, I think, maybe be a little more willing to understand how President Trump's egregious mishandling of this at the beginning cost the lives of potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of Americans. And I think I think there will be a political price to be paid for that, as there should be. Let me add into that, because I don't know if either of you saw this uh, Politico uh, on Thursday evening had actually reached out to scholars around the country. And what they did was they basically gave them each a, uh, amount of space to weigh on in what they are calling the post-coronavirus world. And, uh, you know, here we are, we're talking about the coronavirus and, and um, you know, we're kind of even uh, talking about what it'll look like afterwards. And Mike, what you're basically saying here is, is, look, it's too early to try to make predictions. But what they had asked them was to make a prediction about what does the post-coronavirus world look like? And I'll say a lot of them seem kind of, I don't mean outlandish in a way that it's uh, unreasonable, but rather too soon to kind of make the big, bold predictions they're doing. When this is all said and done, are either of you willing to make predictions about what the American political system might look like? So say November? Not now you've necessarily, and this is not in an election context. You mean like things like whether people talk about canceling the election in November? Uh, For example, do you think we'll have a a different kind of push for how we hold elections? Do you think the way people will end up voting will systematically change in some profound way? Do you think uh, cultural identities will shift in some meaningful way? Do you, in other words, will there be any lingering Corona uh, virus post world changes to the to the structure? Of the American political system. I don't know. I, I don't see a lot of people, you know, changing their political views or political affiliations 
so far, even though a lot of people are affected in, in, you know, in their everyday life quite a bit already. So that's that's hard for me to see. I do agree with Mike that um, President Trump will be very discredited uh, by his by his mishandling of the whole thing. And I, I was going to say on the public opinion polls that you were looking at, you know, you have him very openly and blatantly and obviously mishandling it for about a month. And then you have him giving one press conference, which goes well, where he finally seems to be taking it seriously. And it doesn't surprise me that his polling would go up right after that. But whether that's sustainable or not, um, I, I don't know, because I think the crisis will keep unfolding. Um, and, and that includes the economic crisis as well as the public health crisis. Um, but yet, I gotta, I gotta be skeptical about. I haven't seen anything that can make people change their votes. One thing that could happen if an election is actually held in November is that um, there may be a skewed impact on who can actually make it to the polls. Older voters may be a little more nervous to get out and vote and things like that, and and that could have a, that could have a, a, a politically skewed impact on um, on elections. Um, uh, but I don't know. It's I think it is too early to predict. Yeah, Mike, anything you'd like I, to I add? would agree. Yeah, I'd like to agree. The one prediction I will make is that we, we've seen a little bit of a well, we've seen a trend toward more male voting absentee. No, no, uh, no reason needed to be given voting. We're going to see, I think, a lot more of that. There's a lot of talk about that. And it makes it makes sense for a number of reasons. It helps to, generally speaking, raise turnout. And obviously, in situations like this, it's a huge thing. I know that there's talk about trying to make get more primaries to go that way. Currently, it's going to be a lot more difficult for the general election, if it's at all possible. But I think that is one change we're going to see. Not so much a change, really, but just an acceleration of a pre-existing trend. Well, on that note, why don't we kind of switch to our second story, since you're talking about primaries there, Mike. Uh, and that's the Democratic primary race, which ironically, you know, that that had been the item that we had been spending a lot of time in the news on. Uh, and then, of course, that has really, I, th- I mean, it's not completely gone, but it's definitely in the background. And one big item this week, of course, was Tuesday's almost primary, Ohio's almost primary, uh, hitting close to home for both of you. Uh, and what happened is, is on uh, in Ohio, Tuesday was slated to be uh, the primary, but hours before on Monday, the governor, Mike DeWine, asked an Ohio Franklin County court to delay the election. Now, the problem is that neither the governor nor the courts are authorized to do this. It's, in fact, uh, legislature's job. In fact, the only reason that a governor can delay an election is an an invasion, according to state law. Uh, But the courts were not, the court was not willing to do this. It, matter of fact, refused to uh, postpone the election that evening, calling it, quote, a terrible precedent, end quote. Uh, Then the governor reached out to Dr. Amy Acton, uh, the, at the at his direction ended up ordering the polls closed anyway due to a public health crisis. This was sued. It heads to the uh, United States, or excuse me, to the Ohio Supreme Court. The Supreme Court were not exactly sure what they meant, but they didn't take the case. But they also didn't issue an opinion. Uh, Ken, I know this is very much inside your wheelhouse. What did you think about all of the maturation in Ohio concerning the election? <laughs> Well, actually, they they did take a portion of the case. Um, so there's a portion of it that still has to be argued. Um, so the 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 Supreme Court um, re- reversing the Franklin County judge, as you said, they they ruled that the um, director of health, Dr. Amy Acton, did have the authority to um, uh, uh, 
suspend the in-person component of the election on election day due to the public health emergency. But they did not uh, make a ruling on whether it was whether the secretary of state had authority to change the election day. Um, so they they actually asked for argument on that. So argument is still proceeding. There's a briefing schedule. It's expedited because the Secretary of State set a new election day in Ohio of June 2nd, and it's not at all clear whether he has any legal authority to do that. Well, technically, the, uh, the um, legislature Ohio- has to, to, yeah, to reschedule right, the days. The legislature has to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. He could say technically it depends on what the Supreme Court says. But uh, yeah, the Supreme <laughs> well, Court hasn't said anything the, yet. The, what we but might call the plain law, the, the pr- plain reading of the statute, at least, yeah. would lead one to believe that the legislature has to yeah. uh, to change. Only it, the continue. legislature can do it. That's right. Yeah. The legislature enacted a date for the primary. That's in the law, and there's no provision for changing it. So um, now, how that um, how that provision um, interacts with the provision that gives the public health uh, director. Um, the state public health director, the ability to, um, during a declared state of emergency, take emergency measures. So if, if she could shut down the uh, um, the in-person primary uh, on March 17th, which the court held that she could do, um, how that interacts with the other provision of the code that set the election date for March 17th and March 17th only, um, that's an open question. It's it's possible that the Supreme Court will give a non-textual reading of the uh, of the election date provision and say that. It has to be read in connection with the the, the public health director's authority to shut down um, in-person elections and that that might imply that there has to be some kind of authority to change the date because that would be less severe than simply canceling an election or or perhaps running an election only on the basis of people who'd, committed, who'd cast early votes and depriving people of the right to actually show up on election day, which they were planning to do. There's all kinds of problems no matter how this gets sliced. And... Uh, it's it's probably most likely that the Ohio legislature will step in before the Supreme Court decides this case and set a new election date. And then I think that the, the Supreme Court would probably rule retroactively that that's permissible. Um, but if that doesn't happen, it's, I, I'm with you, I guess, Trey. I don't I don't see how it could be permissible. I don't see how uh, a, a secretary of state could set an election on a different date than the one that's set forth in the in the duly enacted uh, state law. Well, and that led me to another question, uh, and that is, I don't understand why they simply didn't hold an emergency legislative session the weekend prior to start addressing. It, it, it seems bizarre to me that it's Monday when the governor says, hey, let's make this change. Wait, what do you have? The, any, either of you have thoughts on the timing of it? Because again, for me, why doesn't the legislature meet? Why aren't they meeting in advance and making a decision about this? And and why isn't the governor calling an emergency session? I, I think I think he should, and they should. You know, I I'm tr- I was thinking about that. You know, I'll say I myself um, last week when I was on spring break, I took a road trip. I went to Florida. I visited Asheville, North Carolina. I stayed in hotels. Um, the emergency was very, very quick in terms of the way it emerged from like, um, you know, just thinking, oh, there's some crisis coming, but it hasn't really hit yet to thinking, uh, you know, now there's suddenly a crisis. And maybe maybe it just arose a little faster than the Ohio legislature was uh, able to able to uh, respond to it. Or or, or maybe there's um, a bit of uh, political paralysis and they, they would have had a hard time figuring out how to respond to it. Um, I think different legislators may have had different ideas about 
how necessary it really was to cancel or postpone the election. In most of the other states that had primaries on March 17th, they went ahead with them. They didn't cancel them. Um, so Ohio was actually an outlier there. Uh, they held them in, in Florida and Illinois and Arizona, I believe. Um, so, um, you know, may, maybe the reason he didn't get the legislature into a special session is that they wouldn't have postponed the election. But now that they have now that he now that's been postponed, I, I don't see how the legislature can avoid coming in and, and setting a new election day. Now, and you know, obviously one difference for Florida for listeners who may or may not be familiar with state law is right. Florida doesn't have a single day of voting. Uh, you can go in and vote. Uh, let's see, it's almost three weeks uh, anymore. And so is, I mean, you can go in in person and in vote, advance, anybody, as long as you are a citizen, you can request a mail-in ballot uh, and you can do that, you know, and relatively short notice and still put all of those in. So an election in Florida looks a whole lot different than, say, an election in Ohio. And I think that's one of the things that can be kind of difficult to wrap some wrap your head around in, in the American political system, because the Constitution assigns each state the ability to carry out uh, elections. And so they can look radically different. So, you know, Florida goes ahead and has theirs. But that wasn't really a surprising to me, to, considering that most people had probably already voted and it is already baked into the to the ethos of being a participant that you can you can vote in those alternative ways. Uh, do you, I guess maybe what I'm kind of getting around to is, do you think that that was beneficial in Florida? I mean, other, had Ohio had more open voting well, methods? We, do, we actually be? do. We do have all that. We have um, no questions asked absentee ballot. Uh, we have about um, two weeks or a little more than two weeks of early voting, although you have to go down to the county board of elections rather than into your own local precinct. Um, but we have a lot of that. And, and a lot of people did um, vote early. So one of the I mean, one of the possible one of the possible outcomes that could have happened in, in Ohio is they could have just um, counted all the people, all the votes that have been cast early. Uh, but that certainly would have deprived all the people who were waiting for Election Day of their right to vote. And I personally was waiting for Election Day in part because I I had not decided which candidate I wanted to vote for in the Democratic primary. And I was really waiting till the last minute to make that decision. And it turned out that that was, you know, but for the coronavirus, that would have been the wise thing to do because some of the candidates started dropping out and endorsing each other. And all the early voters, you know, a lot of them voted for candidates who actually dropped out um, uh, because they voted before they dropped out. So, you know, I, I think even even with a system that allows early voting, when you've got a kind of fast moving landscape like we had in this primary season, um, early voting is not necessarily the ideal option for voters. You know, I, I wanted to comment on something, Ken, that, that you said. You mentioned that, you know, as recently as as last week. This just wasn't seen as by a lot of people as as that. I mean, it certainly was a concern, but not all of a sudden how it exploded. And a big part of that, of course, has to do with presidential leadership. The fact that President Trump spent weeks downplaying this, saying it was a Democratic plot to get him to get him out of office. And this was no worse, really, than the flu and posting and saying things that people take their lead from the president, people not just in the Republican Party, I mean, but just generally Trump supporters. And so it's not surprising. And, and we need to put this blame, a lot of this blame, squarely on Donald Trump 
because I there's not a doubt in my mind that his reckless disregard for this public health crisis will end up costing tens of thousands of lives, if not more. And we can't lose focus on that. This is serious stuff. And he was woefully unprepared. And a lot of people are going to die because of it. And if it sounds like I'm worked up, I am worked up because of this, because this is this is the, the fundamental responsibility of the government is to protect citizens. Donald Trump has failed in this responsibility. And yeah, he's doing what he can now when it's a, you know, he's doing the right thing when there's no other option. But this is this is just egregious mismanagement that's going to kill a lot of people. And that's just disgusting to me. Well, I'm glad you're worked up about that, Mike, because one of the things that I I really wanted to talk about on the show today was maybe a bigger topic, a bigger kind of question. And it ties in uh, to what you're saying. Effectively, Trump, and I don't think. Maybe I can't even say that I would I don't think any I'm going to go ahead and say it. I don't think any sober minded person uh, can take a look at what happened over the past few weeks and say that President Trump. Uh, was was even being in the ballpark of honest with most people uh, the majority of the time. And this brings me to a question that has been floating around, and we sometimes deal with it on the show. But I think it really kind of gets to the heart of the matter. When you, we, And I like the way you put it there. You said, look, you know, this, this is going to cost lives. And, I, and sometimes when we talk about things, we talk about them in a abstract way. Uh, and that's good, but I, I don't think it's one thing to talk about the economy in an abstract way, but it has real impact on, on real people's lives and their jobs. And in, and in this case, we're talking about people's health and, and their ability to live or have ha- uh, health, uh, hospital care or uh, a, v- a variety of other medical issues. And, and so what I want to say, ask about is one of the things that continues to kind of come to the forefront for me is the, the way that people are getting their information about the coronavirus, uh, or even the way that the president and others have capitalized on the way of talking about it. How do we think about news in the age of social media? And, you know, they're really, in, in academia, there's kind of two big views. I mean, scholars have either argued that the internet is a kind of a democratizing medium. Uh, it's going to, its capacity is going to bring increased access to information and interaction uh, between individuals across the political process. Um, but, and I think sometimes, Mike, the, the two of us probably fall in the second camp. The, the kind of the competing perspective is, is that social media is in fact just a polarizing medium that allows like-minded individuals to kind of share and reinforce their pre-existing political beliefs. And I, there's nothing like a moment of crisis like that to really dice that apart. And, and it's been unusual for me to kind of see the things that are gaining traction about what happens with the, with the coronavirus. Is this a big deal? Is it not? And even right now, uh, we, we, you know, we see, seemingly put aside warnings from the CDC for the more relevant, and I, I put that in quotation marks, but maybe the more exposed social media channels. And, and so I actually agree, Kent, uh, excuse me, uh, Mike, with you on the the placing a bunch of the blame with Trump. It's one of the reasons I can't support this exactly is why I I, I have been a not a not Trump Republican. And. But both of you seem to think that this is going to harm him, but I I don't know. And I wonder about 
how do what are your guys' views? Let's start there. What what are your views about how how does the coronavirus and the way we've thought about it and the way people are disseminating information tell us about what's important to individuals in their news gathering process? I, I agree with you, Trey. I, I I said earlier, I thought on today's show that I I have not seen any evidence that this is harming Trump politically with the people that already support him, and I, I'm not sure it will. And I and I think I agree with your um, diagnosis of why, which is that um, the level of uh, affiliation journalism that people uh, interact with makes it very hard for them to receive information these days that um, ultimately makes them rethink their. Their preconceived views. So I, I, I'm not, I don't know that this is going to hurt Trump politically. Um, and I, and I also agree with you. That what I think was your point that it's a, it's a real problem in this country that um, the, 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 the way people receive uh, information um, is, is completely filtered through a, a partisan lens for a, a great majority of uh, consumers of news and information. Yeah. And, you know, we need to also, I think we need to make a distinction here uh, between social media in general and particularly one form of traditional media and, and one outlet, and that's Fox News. And now you guys, and I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen that cut that was put up, someone did, of Fox News hosts last week and this week on how they so abruptly changed their tune about coronavirus. And Fox News has systematically just basically been a, you know, a megaphone for the president's message. And so that's given him even more sway. And so his irresponsibility has been magnified by that outlet. And these are exactly the people, the Fox News demographic, these are exactly the people who are most at risk for this. And that that shows you, I think, how, I mean, you can argue that a lot of the media is irresponsible, but when you know that you are putting forward a false or a misleading message. And you cannot tell me that the folks at Fox News did not know that. Knowing that that is going to put your primary audience at significantly greater risk of getting sick and dying, if that doesn't turn your stomach, there's something wrong with you, I think. Well, you know, just this week alone, I I was kind of doing this as an unrepresentative sample, but I, I have collected all of the different types of memes that I have seen floating through uh, and the the kind of the biggest have been this is a created virus um, by Dr. Charles Lieber, who, by the way, yeah, he he had some issues with uh, Chinese contracts from Harvard. But uh, the the twist on this, of course, from the meme is effectively that he manufactured this to benefit China and China did this to harm Trump. Uh, the other big one that floats around in a variety of ways has a lot of traction is the idea that the coronavirus is no different than the swine flu, SARS, Ebola, and everything else. Um, so many different takes on that one. Or the the one that just uh, that won't go away is uh, Bill Gates, who's argued once again that these are intentionally caused viruses, which is not true. It's a it's a fake news story. Um, or the the numerous memes that combine what continues to float around about Jeff, uh, Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, and combining it with the coronavirus is kind of a, a left-wing plot. And so I guess my kind of question in summing all of those memes up quickly is to say, those are the things that seemingly have taken up uh, the air and the discord. When I talk with people, they're either asking me to react or respond to those. Uh, and it always kind of comes as a shock when my first response is to say, well, have you checked out the CDC's website? <laughs> and so. 
I guess both for listeners is, and Mike, this is something that I know you've done a lot of work on. What's the best way, in your opinion? Because matter of fact, you wrote a book on this issue, which is getting to how, how do you how, how do you best become an, a consumer of news? Did you not? Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And how you know, do we do that in this age? Well, and part of the problem, of course, is that we have we have foreign powers who are actively sowing disinformation. You know, there was news this week that uh, the EU EU is accusing the Russian government of of a campaign to push contradictory, confusing fake news about coronavirus. And that's you know, that makes it even even tougher. And, you know, I think it's it's sort of like with with good eating guidelines, everyone or almost everyone knows what they need to do. It's just a matter of doing it right, because social media is particularly is designed to feed off of fear and hatred and strong emotions. And we all know what to do. Stop hitting refresh every two seconds. Limit your news consumption to two or three outlets that, you know, are reliable and assume everything you see on social media is false. That's 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 pretty much all you need to do. It's that simple, but that's not how we're wired. And that's the problem is we're working against a lot of very smart people who know how to push our buttons. And that's that's what they're doing. You know, I I shared this with with some of our uh, some of our supporters in the, in the Slack group this week. I got an email as a number of other podcasters and other folks got from this person saying we got a real opportunity here to kill it with this new product. The literal words that they use, kill it with this new product <laughs> uh, designed as a coronavirus cure for this demographic of older males who are you know and I and it just was it was just sickening. But that's that's the sort of mindset and that's that's what people respond to. We know that. And so it's not like it's very difficult advice. It's just incredibly hard to follow because of how human beings are wired. Ken, do you have any last thoughts on that? No, I, I wish I knew a better solution. Um, I, I, of course, agree with the things that Michael said, and I take it that we're actually all in agreement here on, the, on that, that it's it's uh, the Internet um, has, I think, I think, you know, beyond even just consumption of news, I'll go ahead and say I think the Internet overall, um, although it's good for a lot of things and maybe we're all relying on it right now to do distance learning with our students and things like that. I still have to think on balance it's had a more negative uh, impact on society than than positive, that the, the bad outweighs the good and that um, having had the opportunity to live half my life in a pre-Internet world, um, I, I prefer that world. Well, and, and if you guys will both indulge me as we get ready to move into our last segment, I would like to take a bit of a minor victory lap uh, in the sense that, you know, you're you're rightfully kind of outraged, Mike. I, I don't know if I often get outraged per se. I probably should. That's just not kind of my personality. But what I would like to, to say is, is that, you know, a few weeks ago, uh, a, a number of individuals wondered about, well, why didn't, you know, why not just bite the bullet and deal with Trump? Why not vote for Trump? And I think that if you can't take anything else away, it's this kind of moment that explains why I know that you know, we see, I seem to be the fringe on this particular one, but that we're right. And you know, this is why you have to have somebody who's sober-minded, even if you disagree with their particular policies uh, at the helm of your state or of your country. Because it has it has real life impacts. And when we talk about we're talking about who lives and who dies and who gets jobs and who doesn't get jobs. And I think that we often. During a crisis, we think about that maybe a little bit 
Um, but as soon as that passes, we often forget the profound ramifications uh, that our votes have, not just in that moment, uh, but, but for years to come. And, and you can't always even anticipate, I mean, who, who would have been voting uh, three and a half years ago on, um, on the coronavirus? Well, of course, nobody. But of course, we can vote on somebody's kind of their character and we can vote on their, uh, on their steadfast nature to truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Although it's funny because although voters, of course, you're right, the, the things like how to deal with pandemics was probably never an issue for voters that would distinguish candidates. It actually was a significant concern of the executive branch of the United States government yep. um, during the Obama years. And uh, when we had SARS and Ebola outbreaks and and, you know, Trump came in and he he fired all the entire pandemic group within the National Security Council and he gave public speeches saying, there's no point keeping people like this on the payroll when you don't need them. If you ever need them, you can hire them then. You know, it's just it's moronic, you know. Yeah. And, and I, w- I would argue that, you know, really for probably 10 or at least 15 years that the that community of epidemiologists and other folks have said that it's not a matter of when it, or if it's a matter of when this sort of thing is coming. And I feel that the Obama administration didn't do nearly enough and the Trump administration actually went backwards on this. And so, so yeah, they're, they're definitely, you know, Donald Trump saying who would have known? Well, a lot of people knew and that message was just, was just ignored at the highest levels. And I think that, again, comes back to the way that we're having governing by social media. And that's a problem. I want to turn maybe to something a little bit more optimistic. Uh, and that is, I think, something that a lot of listeners have liked, and that's our recommendations. And so these are things that we're watching, we're reading, uh, that we found worthwhile for ourselves. And so, listeners, it's something that we would want uh, to offer to you. I often do uh, books. And in part, that's because I have three kiddos. I don't have lots of time to watch television or movies, but I always have time. I always make time to read. It's just kind of part reading and, and running are kind of just part of who I am. But I, I do want to shift gears for my recommendations this week and recommend a show that's on uh, CBS All Access. I don't know if either of you had a chance to have watched this. I don't know either, either of you are even Trekkies. I've never asked you this before, uh, but I would like to recommend Star Trek Picard. Uh, and the reason I want to recommend uh, Picard, if you ha- already have access to CBS All Access or you know somebody who does, uh, go ahead and uh, log in. Uh, it gets released every week on Thursdays. And it's about uh, the, the Federation is the big overarching governmental unit in the universe of Star Trek. And it's, it's basically come down to this fear. It really much talks to the age that we live in now. And Picard, he has always been this kind of optimistic captain, uh, now admiral. And it's about the struggle between the optimism of Picard living in a dark universe where fear uh, fear of synthetic life and the other uh, has required many to change. They, they think they have to change because of this fear. And so it's, it's kind of testing Picard's ability to put that altruistic and that optimistic of human spirit nature to work. And it, 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 I, I find it to both be a gripping show, but also a worthy watch in a time where it feels like maybe uh, you can't have that ideal of optimism. And I, I so I highly recommend uh, CBS's uh, Star Trek Picard. Uh, Ken, Mike, things you guys would like to recommend. 
Well, you know, I rarely uh, recommend music on this show because Ooh, I know music. Mu- uh, music musical taste is uh, very diverse and and a lot of people like all different kinds of music from each other. Um, but I am going to this week recommend music because of a, a, a friend of mine who I thought of as, as one of Kentucky's great songwriters uh, passed away uh, this week. And uh, I've been making a deep dive through, through all of his recordings, which go back over a period of about 40 years. Um, and he wasn't so well known. So I'm hoping maybe more people will get interested. But this was a Lexington, Kentucky songwriter named Paul Kopaz, K-O-P-A-S-Z. He usually went by the name Paul K. Um, he has a, a lot of recordings up um, on the internet on a site called Bandcamp, which you can you can find his Bandcamp page under paulk.bandcamp.com, where there's maybe 30 of his albums there that you can just stream and listen to. And I'm going to recommend a dive into the, uh, the, the catalog of Paul K, um, who, who, who passed away uh, on Monday. Oh, very cool. I've got something that's very different. Um, a little bit of history here with this one. Um, before I started the politics, guys, I was working on another project. It, it was a book, a, a fiction book called uh, The Reluctant Detective, which I hope would kind of be the start of a series. Actually, it's about a political science professor turned private investigator, sort of very, very loosely modeled on me. And it was kind of a, a lighthearted thing. If you think kind of along the lines of like the show Psych, or if you want to go back further, Murder, She Wrote, kind of along those lines. And and I actually did a few drafts of it, sent it out to some literary agents, and they gave me some good feedback, suggested it had a lot of potential, encouraged me to keep working on it. But uh, at that point, Jay and I started the politics, guys, and that sucked up all of my time. And this just, it never just, it never, uh, you know, developed. But, you know, lately, I've been thinking with so much just really heavy and deeply depressing, hitting anxiety producing news, I I found myself looking for an occasional escape. And I feel like starting up on that book again might be, you know, just kind of the thing to do. But I also wanted to try to find a way to do it in a way that might get give other people a break from all of this bad news or at least a little respite. And so what I've done is I'm not only resuming work on uh, the book, but I'm making it a sort of a group effort. So here's how it's going to work. Every week or so, I'll be posting a chapter or two on uh, Google Doc that I'll make available to everyone. And we'll put the link in today's show notes. And I've set it up so that you can not only read along, but make comments and suggestions. And if I have any questions, maybe about where the story is going, characters, that kind of thing, I'll include them at the end. And you can, you know, give me your responses, your thoughts and that sort of thing. And you can also email me any of those thoughts or comments at Mike at politicsguys.com. And then when the book comes out, uh, if it comes out, and I think there's a good chance it will, I'll be happy to include everyone who helped me out in the acknowledgments, unless you think, Milo, just please don't mention my name, then you'll be one of like, and everyone else who helped me on this book sort of thing. And I thought that'd be kind of just a fun break from the news. And uh, and I hope people will check it out. But for people who uh, are looking for something maybe a little different or don't like detective fiction or anything like that. I've got an author to recommend. Her name is, I'll probably slaughter it, Pima Children. Uh, she's a, a Buddhist nun, and she's written a lot of great things. This isn't just for Buddhists, so that's kind of part of my background. But there are two books of hers that I think are particularly relevant for our current moment in time. I've read them. I'll be rereading them in the next couple of weeks, and they're both available on Kindle. The first is When Things Fall Apart 
heart advice from for difficult times. And the second is living beautifully with uncertainty and change. And I think a lot of people will find both of those books very, very valuable. And those are my recommendations. Okay, now I have extra things I have to listen to and to read and... <laughs> And I got to teach classes online. I don't have, no, I'm just teasing. Well, I'm not completely teasing. Well, listen, it's been a lot of fun being with both uh, you, Ken, and have you as our bonus this week, Mike. I appreciate you joining us. Yeah, glad to be here with Well, I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Politics Guys, all of the hosts, myself included. I really, truly love working on the show. It's a labor of love for me. I know that is for Mike. I know it is for all of us. Uh, but it make the only thing that makes it possible is the support of really amazing listeners like you. And and one of the ways you can help the show is by subscribing to the Politics Guys on the podcast app of your choice. So does sharing episodes, as Mike mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Word of mouth advertising is the best, and we certainly appreciate it. We need your support. One of the great things about being a supporter is you get access to supporters-only content, including our full-length supporters-only Wednesday show, which Mike and Ken and myself will be recording momentarily. So if you want to become a supporter or to check out more of the benefits of supporting the Politics Guys, uh, check out our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash politicsguys. Or you can just go to politicsguys.com slash support. So join me, Ken, and Mike once again on Wednesday by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys. I also wanted to note uh, that in light of the coronavirus, if you don't have the ability to pay for the politics guys, we want to make that available to you as well. Mike, how can somebody get access to the politics guys if they don't have the resources during the coronavirus? It's real simple, Trey. Just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and just let me know you'd like access. And that's really it. I'll send you I'll send you a link, get you all set up, and you'll be good to go. I'm happy to do it. We want you to have some positive news. We want you to be able to be part of the, the Politics Guys family, even if that's not a possibility. And I know uh, for a lot of individuals, I know it's a, it's a tough economic time right now. You don't have your hours. You don't have your work. Um, but if you can, we would love you to support the show. If you've got a question, a comment, or a correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We also strive for civil and rational debate on our relatively recent Reddit at Bipartisan Politics. And I will have to admit, I have deeply enjoyed being involved in bipartisan politics in a way that I, I never really was uh, on Twitter or later as we, as we did things on Facebook. So I really encourage listeners to head to our Reddit, Bipartisan Politics, and kind of break through the, the typical social media cycle that we talked about and enjoy, I think, some healthy debate and conversation uh, and some long-ranging conversations that I, I just don't think you'll find absolutely anywhere else. But as always, you can also get us on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Murano, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.